Hey everybody, welcome to episode 73 of Literary Disco, Galapagos. Today, we will get the scoop on Julia's journey to the Galapagos Islands, and keeping in theme, we will read the novel Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut. But up first, we'll do a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I each take a book down from our shelves to discuss. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hey, Ryder Strong. How you doing? I'm tired. Imagine that. So what, how's fatherhood? Yeah, how, how many hours a night are you sleeping? I, it's like a, you on know a, what? On a, on a good night. I, we're actually, I think we're doing well as far as, like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm mostly tired because I'm also directing Girl Meets World full time. So that is, is a pretty stressful job that requires homework and stuff too, on top of being a father. So the, the, I think, you know, I, I went back to work. Went back to work pretty early. Like I could use another another couple of weeks. Um, another and then, fourteen years. Another fourteen years. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, uh, my wife is also going back to work this week. So we're 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 jumping right back in. We're we're kind of living our lives as if we never had a child, um, which is probably the, the it's wrong gonna make way for to do a it. great memoir for your son <laughs> in about 30 years yeah. yeah no i mean you know he's he's a good baby like he actually is sleeping like five to six hours at a time which is what a lot of people good. are you know wishing they could have so so far we've been really lucky he's not like super colicky or crazy or i don't know he's awesome i mean you know he's pretty boring which is great i have uh i have seen the prodigal son listeners and here's what i can tell you pretty goddamn cute <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the gene pool of the strong family, in case you guys weren't aware, pretty goddamn good. <laughs> yeah, it's cute. Yeah, it's cute. a very cute baby, very cute baby. Um, and um, he'll be he'll be contributing to the show soon. We're gonna have a whole segment called uh, literary children's books that will be starting in six years, and where he'll be commenting almost solely on the works of dr seuss six years come on this is writer's kid let's yeah, he'll be get reading, him in in four he'll be reading by a four hopefully four or five yeah well i was wondering right. about like I, I you know i i wouldn't be surprised if we do end up because like we're going to be getting into the reading him books stage pretty quick i mean i'm already reading the books but i mean reading him like children's books pretty quickly here and i'm so curious like what to read him like i have no idea like really early kids books everybody right like we, you know we had a baby shower and people gave us books and and they gave us things like a, like four copies of good night gorilla like there's certain books that everybody loves good did night you gorilla. get the um did you get the baby moby dick and baby pride and prejudice no every bridal oh every baby shower i've been to maybe it's more popular out here um, so there's this person, it's really great, who's distilled a bunch of classics down to, um, they're a board book, mm-hmm. and they're only like eight pages long, and each page is like a little felt diorama and one word. So Moby <laughs> Dick is like, um, whale, uh, what's it? Oh, it's like whale, Ahab, boat, and then like sink, and then the last one, it's so... <laughs> So fucked up if you know Moby Dick. It's just this little felt Ishmael looking up, lying on the raft, and the last one is stars. He's like contemplating his mortality. Oh my God. It's so Existence. so 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 funny. That's um, you, yeah. You got to get those. Those are really funny. Well, this actually goes right into my bookshelf revisit because um, you know I, I decided 
you're supposed to talk to your baby as much as possible, right? So they hear as many words as possible. And so after a while, you like, you know, all when you realize all you've been saying to your baby is like, oh, or do you have to poop again? Or let's burp you again. Like the conversation gets very limited. So I decided to read aloud to my baby and I decided to read some poetry. And I got down the old Coleridge collection. And I realized, I don't think I had ever read Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Um, water, oh, wow. water everywhere, but not a drop to not drink. Not a drop to yeah, drink. Yeah, you guys have read it, obviously, and you know. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. What a weird poem. Like, I yeah. had, it's yes. basically like this fantasy ghost boat story. What the hell is going on? <laughs> like, I, I, I just, it, it, well, first of all, I love the way it sounds. It's, it's bas- it sounds like a kid's poem. And that's why mm-hmm. reading it aloud to my it's kids is so It's got a real fun. lilting yes. uh, back and forth Incredible verse, yeah. rhythm. And like the, the, the word choice is just so perfect. And then I also, the one I, you know, I didn't realize that Coleridge himself supplied explanations in the margins for like what was happening in the poem. So like pretty much every edition of the poem has like an explanation you know, it's sort of like the old chapter headings in books where it used to be like, here's what's going to happen in this chapter. And it would be like, you know, right. the whole. it's like that every section of the poem that Coleridge himself supplied. Um, and it's just a real weird adventure ghost story. Um, and I was so into it and so weirded out by it. For some reason, I, I don't know, I, I guess I had read it maybe when I was in high school, but it just, I never, it didn't stay with me, obviously. Because so, here I was expecting some sort of, I guess, you know, because I associate Coleridge with Wordsworth and, mm-hmm. and Keats and all the other romantics, I was sort of expecting more of a, like, you know, pastoral scene about, I don't know, but obviously it had to do with boats, but I didn't, I don't know, I just didn't know what I expected, but instead it just becomes this kind of crazy adventure story. Um, and it was really, like I said, it felt like a great kid's poem, uh, a little disturbing, you know, and there's, right. there's obviously <laughs> some heavy religious uh overtones uh you know forgiveness but you know those guys sinning, but it was... the, the those guys were deep into lore and mythology and ghosts and right. mm-hmm. you know even then riding the high seas was it had been something that had been going on for a long time and it was a thing of great mystery right. so it, it makes sense that it would it would be like that but you want to hear something weird related to the rhyme of the ancient mariner so this week i got a message on my uh, office phone at the University of California Riverside um, from the English teacher I had in high school who taught me the rhyme of the ancient mariner mm. um, wow. and she was inviting me to come speak at the library and she said I don't know if you remember me from the old English lit days um, but you were my student and I was like oh my god That's so I, cool. I literally I hadn't thought of why well, I, I thought of yeah. this woman fairly frequently over the years but so then I called her and I didn't know what to call her. So she said, you know, she said her name and I'm like, well, and, oh, and by the way, in my mind, when she was my teacher, she was 800 years old. <laughs> and so before I called her, I went and pulled out the old yearbook, be like, oh my God, so this woman's got to be like 90 now at least. And of course she was like 27 right. when she had been my teacher. <laughs> oh. God. So, disturbing. so she yeah. had she had retired, you know, like ten years ago, and I was like, oh, so I'm just I'm just a horrible person because in my mind she was 800 years old, but I didn't know what to call her, and I was like, well, I could call her Miss whatever her name was, but I don't, 
Maybe she's been married since then, so I just said, oh, fuck it, I'll just call her by her first name. And then I had to say to her, hey, it's weird, I'm calling you by your first name. And she then said to me, well, when I was teaching you, I was working with people that had been my teachers in high school. So imagine how that felt to me. And wow. I was like, oh, wow. You really were super young. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I was a dick. Yeah. <laughs> the conclusion to every Todd Goldberg story. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized I was a dick. And then I realized I was horrible. And she uh, she said to me, I, I have to tell you, Todd, I, I didn't imagine you'd end up a professor. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, burn. I yeah, like I didn't. Lady. I didn't. I couldn't have predicted that for myself when I was fifteen. Um, and she said, "But you always were very creative in your lying in class." I was like, "Yeah, that, <laughs> that I recall." That's awesome. So That's a weird confluence of events. So, what's your revisit, Todd? Well, I haven't been reading anything. Um, <gasps> yeah, but I have things. Well, but of course, I've been reading things. Um, but I haven't read any books other than literary disco books and the books I have to uh, teach my students and or that they are writing and that I'm reading right now. It's been a very busy time. I had a baby. That's not true. Oh, no. No, I didn't. Yeah. Right. No. I went to the, yeah. the fucking Galapagos no, and I saw that, that a fucking uh, Gila monster. No, that was, that was me. Yeah. Um, but what I have been doing You're not is... busy. You should be <laughs> I've been listening to an awful lot of singer-songwriters because I've also been writing. And so I would like to extol the virtues of a wonderful double album that was really two separate albums of a singer-songwriter. And that is Justin Towns Earl. Justin Towns Earl's uh, two albums, Single Mothers and Absent Fathers. Uh, Absent Fathers just came out. Single Mothers came out in 2014. Um, and if you are a fan of singer-songwriters, Justin Towns Earl is uh, Steve Earl's son. The absent father that he talks about in his album Absent Father is actually Steve Earl. (laughs) (laughs) The single mother he speaks about in his album Single Mother, which also is about his absent father, would be his mother, and then his father, Steve Earle. But just really delicate, interesting uh, songwriting. And there's this one song that I've been listening to um, over and over and over and over again to the point that um, I'm sure Wendy is like, okay, either kill yourself or stop listening to that song. Um, And it is called Today and a Lonely Night. And I'm pulling up the lyrics one moment, please. Uh, Tucker, hold, please. Yeah, I can hold. One moment, Tucker. <laughs> Tucker, calm down. <laughs> Tucker, don't interrupt me. Have you got a problem? Hold on. So while Todd's looking, I feel like, guys, uh, even though that episode was insane and possibly a mess, I think maybe we should do another song lyrics episode because our listeners do bring it up with fair frequency. Sure. So they do. I love to talk about song lyrics. It's, I'm obsessed, so... Yeah, and um, we should do, as I remember mentioning two years ago when we recorded this episode, like, we should make sure to include maybe, like, some really good rap lyrics or, you know, branch out a little from emo, emo, emo. You know, I emo. don't <laughs> listen to any hip-hop, but Todd can, Todd can bring in some I, baseball-themed hip-hop, yeah. I'm sure. Oh, how dare yeah. you. Hold on. So the song, uh, Today in a Lonely Night, which is a very sad and depressing song, but it includes this great lyric. My baby just called and said, the Midtown Tunnel is open, so let's ride. But I said, darling, I just don't feel much like going to Brooklyn tonight. 
And the way he sings it is so plaintive and sad. And then you think, if only more hipsters decided not to go to Brooklyn tonight. Um, but it, it's it's a great sort of double album that he had recorded originally as a double album, but then decided he didn't want to be like Skinnered in '74 and put out a double album, and uh, and so he waited. But I've I've been a, fa- a fan of um, Justin Towns Earl um, for a lot of years. But like a lot of my favorite singer songwriters, he recently got clean and got married, and all of a sudden his songwriting and his singing have improved because he's not drinking, so therefore his voice is stronger. He's married, so he's his life is in a, a better condition. Um, and it's just a, a really mature and interesting album. And then the other thing that I, I've been obsessed by is the Sturgill Simpson album that has this song called Turtles All the Way Down, um, which is the most fucked up, weird, uh, hippie, disco, or not disco, hippie uh, acid trip of a song. Um that I have been obsessed by for, I don't know, two months now that I've been uh, listening to it over and over again. Um, I, I won't describe it. I'll just put the video up on our Facebook page and you can all see the strange fucking uh, video as well. But there's a, a bit in the song that talks about the alien reptiles made of light who come and uh, steal your soul. What? Which is, and it's in a country song. It's fucking great. Actually, Tucker, this would be an opportunity for you to play a little snippet of Turtles All the Way Down by Sturgill Simpson. Says my son, it's all been done. Someday you're gonna wake up old and gray. Go and try and have some fun. Showing warmth to everyone. Need and greet. Cheat along the way. Far beyond this place We're reptile aliens made of life Cut you open, pull out all your pain Wow, that was just amazing. That was just so strange and haunting. It is strange and haunting. You guys both need to, when we're done, go listen to Turtles All the Way Down by Sturgis Simpson. Well, speaking of turtles... Actually, yes! Yes! The transitions today are like, boom, boom. So what's up? Uh, How was the Galapagos, Julia? Tell us all about it. Oh, it was fantastic. And I will will promise to fold my revisit in with this uh, conversation. Um, Oh, God, guys, it was so cool. It was uh, everything I thought it would be and more. Um, The animal situation is unbelievable. I mean, like, just so close to birds and... Sea lions just every minute of every day. Really? I mean, How long did just, it take to get there? Um, well, we flew into Ecuador. We flew through Panama, where I left my wallet on the plane, which was oh, like, sort of a classic. And then I just walked back to the plane. I was like, um, I think my wallet's on the plane. They got it for me. And it, it was great. Oh. Um, so, you got fucking uh, lucky. Could, that plane could have been in anywhere. Burundi by that point. Anywhere. Um, and then from Ecuador, you fly out and it's a a couple hours out to the islands. And then you basically have to be boat bound because what's amazing about them is that 
they're a national park, uh, so it's really restricted as to when you can go on which islands and where you can go, and you can never go off the trails and all this stuff. So, you know, you kind of live on a boat that goes island to island, and then every day you get off and you snorkel with sharks and penguins and all kinds of cool stuff. That is weird. The, yeah. The, the tropical penguin is a strange, strange thing. It was an... So it was like the second to last time we hadn't seen them yet. And I, w- I didn't want to be that like jerk who was like, I got to see penguins, but we're about to jump in the water. Give me penguins. And, and I was like, the old so penguin jerk. There's lots of those. <laughs> that jerk. That old penguin jerk. Give me penguins or give me death. Hobo so. Johnny on the penguin high. <laughs> Give me a penguin and I'm not happy until I've seen a penguin. <laughs> oh man. So we're like uh, we're sitting on the Zodiac, which is this inflatable raft type boat with which you go um to land or to snorkeling locations. And um we're about to jump in and I'm like so, um, you know, if we were to see a penguin, you know, how, what should I be looking for? You know, like I'm looking They're for like tips. A flightless waterfowl that looks like it's wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> and the, the guide was like laughing and he was like, you, they're really hard to look for. You'll know it if you see it. I don't know. So we get in the water and like Greg and I are sort of alone. We're slow. We're like taking our pictures or whatever. And from between Greg's legs four penguins suddenly just like torpedo through the water they move so fast they move unbelievably fast like a bullet and then they can just hover you know and then they pop up to the surface and they just you know dart around it's so so cool how they move and they're really cute they're really cute so they will will take your eyes out though right they will take your eyes out you can't love them up They'll, they'll peck your face I mean, I didn't try to. <laughs> They're not like the grab killer penguin. chimpanzees that we've discussed. You and I don't know. You're shysty chimp here, and then now, now you're making the penguins out to be evil. Like not all I, animals yeah, are Todd, evil geniuses. <laughs> Todd is officially the first person in human history to be afraid of a penguin. This is why he wants to live in the desert. He wants there to be no other life forms except maybe slow turtles. No, no, last, this is a true story. Yesterday, Wendy and I and our two dogs were standing out in our yard, and this giant hawk started hovering above our two cocker spaniels, and I'm like, oh my god, this hawk is going to take Scout. And so I'm like, get away! Get away! Wow, I would love to, you know what, we should just take Todd to the Galapagos, just because everywhere he goes, he'll be like, that thing wants to eat me! It's like, that's a flower, Todd, it's okay. (laughs) Hey, man. (laughs) What were those those Venus flytraps? Oh my god! When I was a kid, I was pretty sure I was gonna lose something from a Venus flytrap. Like I thought it was quicksand, lockjaw, and Venus flytraps. Oh. So they, Venus flytraps don't like snap really quickly, though. I think I think well, they just slowly. Close. I wasn't a very I wasn't a fast mover as a child. <laughs> Julia. <laughs> Was, he I could have found himself relaxing slow. in a Venus flytrap and not knowing, I'm just going to rest on this little pillow here. Look, when you put your penis inside of a plant, God knows what's going to happen. Okay, um, anyway, I don't know how to get back. Wait, no. so Julia, what was your favorite animal yeah, that you saw? We um, well, the tortoises are amazing because they're basically dinosaurs. Um, right. And they have this 
breeding program and they're so i mean like when they hatch they're like four inches long and then they end up being you know huge i mean like when they extend their necks they can be up to like five feet i think tall what's what's the oldest tortoise that they that they know that's (laughs) out there you know i don't know um i don't know exactly they so lonesome george this tortoise that was the only remaining of the subspecies on the one of the islands um do you guys know about lonesome george have we talked about this no Oh, this is fascinating. Yeah, you talked about it on a... On a yeah. So uh, he was the last. So there were no tortoises on this one particular island. They, no one had seen one in 50 years. And then one day somebody was like, oh, there's a tortoise over there. And uh, they're genetically distinct. So, you know, they knew he was of this island. And so they, I think they thought he was at least 130 or 140 years old. Wow. And then he just recently wow. died. Um. Mm. So they can live a really long time. I mean, they don't right. do much. They sit in the grass and eat, and right. then that's it. <laughs> um, Not a bad life. They're really cool. They don't need to do much. Did you see uh, Gila monsters? We saw. There's not Gila. I I don't know the no, def- not, exact not Gila monsters. Is it, big iguanas? Yeah. There's land the, iguanas, um, marine iguanas. Mo- do they have monitor lizards out there? Is that what they have out there? I think Gila um, monsters are only on the island of Gila. Yeah, lava lizards, land iguanas, marine yeah. iguanas, a ton of lizards, tons of lizards. But the, um, you know, swimming with sea lions was another, you know, up close and personal experience. Okay. I don't know. If you if you like animals or birds, especially if you like birds, it's just such a crazy place. And then there's the Darwin's finches are everywhere too, so. Right. It's all, it's all just beautiful and cool, and the history is so fascinating. So, for my revisit... Um, I, when I was there, because I really wanted to, the vacation to be really educational. So it was already educational in that, like, part of it was I went to basically a lecture every day on Darwin or people who've tried to live on the Galapagos Islands and all this stuff. And then I also only brought, the only reading I brought was five books about the Galapagos. So I brought <laughs> the one we read today. I brought one on Lonesome George. I uh, brought natural history about geology and stuff. And... I the one that was the best is just a fantastic book. It's called The Beak of the Finch by Jonathan Weiner. Um, it's so interesting. So there was this couple that it's just nonfiction science writing, great book, um, who were studying these finches on this one particular island, and the the study spanned like thirty five or forty years, mm. and they got to the point where they knew on site every individual finch wow hundreds of birds they could say like oh that's number 412 uh she's the daughter of 211 and 315 and because their study was so detailed and finches have no uh natural predators so they're very easy to study because you can pick them up and measure their beaks and all that stuff so since they had so much data they ended up doing this amazing study on natural selection and evolution um, because it's really hard to see species to actually prove evolution through scientific study because it takes a long time to see, you know, natural selection events and then see how species respond. So they were there for so many years that they would see these birds go through droughts or really lush seasons and then see like 80% of the population die off and then go and measure all the beaks of the little ones and um, it's just a fascinating book about science and 
birds and Darwin and, you know, whether or not he was right. So. He was right. He was right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just going to say. Hold on Some one minute, Julia. Yeah. Just, just to be clear. Oh, did you I believe not in evolution, right? Tell you guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Julia went to the Galapagos and came back yeah. to creation. Yeah. Just a couple things. It's all intelligent design. It's all intelligent design. Also, I'm not, I'm not inoculating my children from measles. Oh, oh boy. Man. Great. Uh, wow, that sounds amazing, but yeah. Julia. Yeah, it was amazing. If you're a nerd, you know, it's just a dream destination, and it was really cool. And there's so much to learn because, and it's so manageable uh, because humans have not been on the Galapagos for very long at all. So there's, it's not like all muddled with like a thousand years of history. Like we went to Greece, and I tried to like read up everything on Greece, and like forget it, you can't. Like, if you think about Greek history, it's too much. But Galapagos, you can really dig deep and learn a lot of what there is to know just for a vacation. Hey, speaking of finches, briefly, before we go talk mm-hmm. about Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut, how about the fact that the Harper Lee is publishing a new book about oh. Scout Finch? Ladies yeah, and gentlemen. we got to talk about that. Oh, I didn't know anything about this. I'm, oh, I'm, what? I'm you haven't heard been, this? Ryder has not been on the internet yeah. for, uh, since no. 1997. So oh Harper Lee, God. they found um, her original book that she wrote before To Kill a Mockingbird, which is about Scout as an adult. Her editor back then said, no, what you need to do is write about Scout as a child. So she wrote To Kill mm-hmm. a Mockingbird. But this, so this book called Go to the Watchman, is that what it's called? Um, Go, Go Tell, tell the Watchman. Um, was found bound to an original copy of To Kill a Mockingbird in some old file at Random House or whatever her publisher is. And so they're going to publish it in, like, two months or something like that. Oh, my God. And it's already, I think it's on Amazon, the day that it was announced, they they put it up there, and it was already number three. Well, Um, the thing is, and it's a little more complicated than that, it's really interesting, and I'm kind of glad you don't know about it so we don't talk about it forever because everyone else is doing it, but... um, (laughs) You know, it wasn't, the file wasn't at Random House. The, her it was in sister, a safety deposit box or something like that. Right. Her sister, who was her, uh, managed her estate, just recently died. And then this manuscript suddenly turns up. And as most people know, Harper Lee is really not well and kind of reclusive. So there's a lot of questions about, you know, the in whose of- best interest, mm-hmm. yes, this mm-hmm. book is and whether or not... She's really um Oh, it's called Go Set a Watchman. Go Set a Watchman. Go Set a Watchman, that's it, yeah. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of good pieces out about it. I recommend that our listeners Google around about it, but um, I don't know. My feeling overall is I don't know how it is ethically, but I still badly want to read the book. And she says she wants it. it. Apparently Harper Lee, though, is is blind at this point um, and deaf. Um, and living in a an old folks home, but they, you know, they, she released a statement saying yes, of course she supports this 100 percent and all this stuff. Um, but I'm just looking at the cover of the book and it says Harper Lee, Ghost of a Watchman, by the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, and that's just a <laughs> weird thing. That just looks so weird by the author of To Kill a. I mean, I'll read the book the day it comes out. I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait. We should do an episode on it. <gasps> Maybe it comes out July fourteenth, July fourteenth, two thousand fifteen. All right, we'll get a copy. So, if anyone from Harper is listening, is who's her publisher? Is it Harper? 
Uh, it is Harper. That's her name, Todd. Right. It's also her publisher. <laughs> Harper is her publisher. Um, please send us a copy of uh, Ghost Set of Watchmen by Harper Lee. We'd like to read it. We think she's got a lot of promise, this second novel first. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You can't really she judge could use the publicity. Put out yeah. For Mar- the literary disco publicity machine. Yeah. Really, really good for an, uh, a little author like her. We move fucking copies, yo. Harper, get with us. Or as the kids say, get with us. Welcome back, everyone. We hope your break was as long and chaotic as ours was. <laughs> I think this is the first time we've ever taken a break where we actually took a break. And it, uh, it was, it we've like actually not 40 been minutes about, of chaos. About 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> During that time, literally the world fell apart for Ryder Strong. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. His contact just, went up into his eye, though, and I, you, we all know happen. how that is. A contact meltdown. I had a little. No, I'm just in the middle of production, and production is always a little chaotic. I had a little so. too much coffee. I had to. I had to pee. Evacuation complete. Complete. Evacuation complete. All right. Um, so I am very interested and excited about our discussion of the novel Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, he, I didn't really look it up, but uh, he wrote this at some point in his <laughs> illustrious career. In the 1980s. And a lot of people have, yeah, in the 80s. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have read Slaughterhouse-Five and Cat's Cradle, two very famous books as well as, I mean... A Breakfast of Champions. There's lots of great Kurt Vonnegut works, but um, Galapagos is a really ambitious uh, novel, and I'm not sure how widely read it is. Um, so before we get to your guys' opinion on the book, let me just uh, put out there, I read this book um, when I got into Skidmore, uh, where I went to college. This was the book that every freshman had to read that year. They You're chose this me. book. I'm this, not well, Wait a minute, wait a minute. This was a... They required it of the Here's why. Here's why. Um, And it made, and rereading it, um, this all kind of fell into place in my mind. So um, the reason was, is that there was this kind of all uh, class experience called uh, liberal studies one. And what they would do is, uh, you know, you'd hear a lecture from like every different department in the uh, the school and then do discussions. And Galapagos really covers at least touches upon, um, obviously, biology, philosophy, economics, culture, culture, um, all that stuff. So that was my, this was my first, uh, you know, collegiate reading. And um, for that reason, I think I have a really skewed experience of it because I've spent a lot of time talking about it before. Um, Mm. But let me just give, isn't it? Um, I actually think it was a great choice, uh, having reread it, but, uh, before we they get didn't to do all that, that at Cal State Northridge, by the way, you just pretty much started and then you drank and then four years later they gave you a BA. <laughs> wow. Great. All school. you had to do was read the label of a Jack Daniels bottle. That was the required <laughs> reading. <laughs> if you, if you could be smart enough to figure out if you spent a dollar more, you could get something other than Keystone. You got, you got a BA. <laughs> So, uh, anyway, so 
novel about, you might ask yourself? Um, well, basically the conceit is that it's being told from the point of view of someone a million years in the future looking back at the pivotal year of 1986 and how it was, uh, there was a singular event which eventually led to the evolution of mankind into a furry, sea-like version of ourselves. Um, and the, the person narrating it should be noted is Kilgore Trapped. Yes. Who is Vonnegut's um, alter ego in many of his books. Right. Um, so there's some Kilgore Trout action, uh, but most of the novel really deals with, uh, it's told out of out of order in a way that I'm sure we'll get to, uh, about humans who are, get trapped in the Galapagos and end up uh, deciding how to evolve the species. So with all that being said, um, how did you guys find the Galapagos? Was it, let's start here, did it fall in line with other Vonnegut experiences in your life, or do we think this is something wholly different? Um, I would qualify Galapagos as one of the uh, extreme lesser works of Kurt Vonnegut's life. <laughs> wow. And I would include that with the book of stories of his that they put out a couple years ago that he had never published when he was in his 20s, which I quite enjoyed, but whose title of which I cannot recall. Um you know, it's 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 still well written and, and periodically funny, but it is to me at least such an anachronistic muddled mess of nineteen eighties new age philosophy yep. and quasi celebrity culture that page by page I thought, Really? This is what Kurt Vonnegut spent his last years on? Was this? I I'm sorry. I absolutely and Kurt Vonnegut, wherever you are, I'm sorry. I apologize. To you. In and the blue I'm just tunnel a, of the I'm afterlife just, that Kurt Vonnegut. Has I'm just a through. simple. I'm just a simple crime novelist stuck in the amber of time, as one might say. I I wanted to fucking kill. Well, myself. you know, and I know people. Someone got mad at me for saying I wanted to kill myself reading something else. I don't remember what Neil book Patrick it was. Harris. Someone got angry with me for Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> I, no, I didn't want to kill myself. I, think, I just I found it, un, yeah, it was Neil Patrick Harris. I found it unfunny. I found it anachronistic, and I found it a waste of Kurt Vonnegut's substantial and amazing well, now, talents. You know, I um, <laughs> I've been having a hard time working reading into my life with a newborn and trying to like find the 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 you know it, it's hard to read and hold a baby, and I. <laughs> been trying to like read aloud while holding him and while feeding him. This and, is like the and, lamest of excuses. Well, no, not like you're tired or you're busy. Of course, so, no, I'm very busy and I'm very tired, and so finding time to read has been difficult. And so I'm glad to hear Todd felt as extreme as I did, and that it wasn't just because I started to think. I started to think: is this going? Is this going to make all my reading experiences this miserable? Because I actually had. I said aloud to Alex, I would rather be rereading Finnegan's Wake than reading this piece of shit. Mm. I hated this book so much. I, 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 I couldn't really stand it. this I book. I, I mean, like, I was pulling my hair out. Ter- and finally, like, I only finished this book five minutes before we started recording today because I could not make the time to read this book. I hated it so much. Um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm so with you. I thought it was just a mess. 
and you know it makes me question all of Vonnegut because I had only I've only read Cat's Cradle and I read that in ninth grade or whatever and I remember liking it but now I'm like God I, I mean I've never read Slaughterhouse Five which is the book I'm sure Slaughterhouse Five is remarkable it's an unbelievable book yeah it's an unbelievable but book but now I am so book. astounded that Skidmore made its freshman read this <laughs> well, piece of crap. they never claimed, yeah. they never ever claimed, and as I remember, um, I, my professors also never claimed it was that book. it was good. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely chosen to be controversial on a lot of levels. Um, so I don't want to, I love and adore Skidmore, so I don't want it to be put out that they were, like, touting this as the best thing that's ever been written. Right. And I think it was a controversial choice, and they never used it again. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I... Well, it's also super... I mean, it, it, it's just, like, a super liberal, and I'm a super liberal. Yeah. But it's just a super liberal... Oh, yeah. ...rebuke of the 1980s post-Reagan. Like, it's everything that I remember about 1985 in one book. Right. <laughs> so I can I can see why a liberal arts college like Skidmore would be like, we're going to read Galapagos because yeah. we're going to make sure these children know that President Reagan is the, is the worst thing that has ever happened on Earth. Why did they sound like um, George and I guess he was still in office at the time. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, this is all very interesting, and I'm so excited because I, I mean, I definitely don't love the book, but I do not have the visceral repulsion that you guys have. I mean, I, I think it's the voice is, I'm familiar with the Vonnegut voice. I'm into it. My my major issue with it, let's break it down. Um, okay, is that it. The way that the point of view is telling the story and the way that it structurally is, you know, like unveiling everything that it's unveiling, um, it feels like the story is always about to start. There's mm -hmm. no sense of presence in the moment. Right. So I had to look and this up. You could literally open the book on any page. Well, so I had to look one. this up because right. I was so annoyed by just the tense, the actual, the you know, the mm -hmm. and, and I finally had to look it up and it's, it's past... It's past perfect and past perfect continuous is is the technical t uh, terms for what tense he's using constantly, which is an event of s something happening before the thing that actually happened. You know, so it's like we were doing this when blah, blah, blah. Right. And had yes, been. this had right. been going on when blah. And that's this entire book, which is so infuriating. It's like a way to bake in suspense when you actually don't have any suspense in your story. Yes. So there's this constant yes. sense of like, oh, oh, that, you know, so it, I lasted about like 25 pages. I was like, okay, okay, something big is going to happen and what's going to be exciting. And then it was like, oh, no, the whole book is going to be the about to happen and the about to happen mm -hmm. is really stupid and just not that interesting and i yeah so i had to look up the tense issue because it was driving me crazy i was like what is this 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 tick that he's put into the language that oh i hated it so much yeah i you know what i was reminded of though interestingly in a much better reading experience was that it's really like he decided, oh, you know what? I like that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm going to write yes. that and set it on the Galapagos Islands. Yes. I was reminded so much of, of Hitchhiker's and made me really appreciate Hitchhiker's sense of whimsy mm -hmm. and, and, and ability to to be satirical without being super... Like, you know, we talked about satire a lot mm -hmm. with that episode. And um, 
Vonnegut is clearly a darker satire. Like he's much more cynical and, you know, there's a lot more death and sexual dysfunction and weirdness in this book. Um, it's a lot darker in general. Uh, and not for any good reason. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, (laughs) you know, you know what I mean? Like it just makes you feel kind of dirty and weird at times. And like, negative about human race and, and all this stuff, but I'm not sure what for, and it's not funny enough to to really make that biting satire worth it. Like, I, I don't want to go to these dark places that Vonnegut's taking me because I'm not laughing. It's not funny. So it's not, you know, uh, it's just caustic and biting and, and yeah, it's, it's a dark book. And, and, I, and I, I wanted the mice to show up from Hitchhiker's Guide to like sort of save us with this sense of humor and the sort of, you know, I guess I wish it had gone more sci-fi and crazy the way that Hitchhikers mm-hmm. did yeah. in order to make light of everything. And instead, it just stayed in this really dark, awful place with hints of of some sci-fi and hints of fantasy, but then also constantly trying to make these scientific biology points that don't really add up for me. No. Um, to, to give you guys an example of the tense thing that Ryder was talking about, this is from um, very late in the book, but I just I just randomly pulled it up here. Uh, it's from chapter 29. Mary Hepburn was meanwhile murdering herself up in her room, lying on her bed with the polyethylene sheath of her Jackie dress wrapped around her head. The sheath was now all steamed up inside, and she had hallucinated that she was a great land tortoise lying on its back in the hot and humid hold of a sailing ship of long ago. She pawed the air in perfect futility, just as a land tortoise on its back would have done. As she had often told her students... Sailing ships bound out across the Pacific used to stop off in the Galapagos Islands to capture defenseless tortoises who could live on their backs without food or water for months. And then it goes on. So you are in a present that then flashes back and flashes back and flashes back and flashes back all within the same moment. So it's really hard to get the narrative thread. But as it happens, Julia was just on one of those sailing ships <laughs> to go well, see those very same tortoises. So here's what's interesting. So reading this in the Galapagos was a much better reading experience because all of the factual information that's being given out is absolutely true. I mean, he obviously... It is, like all the bonobos, the mm-hmm. blue-footed bonobos. All of that, and, and even what right. you just exactly read... Of the tortoises mm-hmm. being stacked on their backs on whale ships. I mean, like, that's all correct. And it's, there's way more, <laughs> this is such a dumb statement, but there's much more Galapagos natural history in this book than I remember from reading it. Because unless you've been there, you don't realize that all that context is just very thoroughly researched. Um, researched? But that's horrible then, because like that's the thing I didn't know whether to take the facts as facts. Right. Like they weren't because there's so much absurdity. Like that, you know, the human race evolves into furry, flippered, seal people. Yep. Like that's where the book. Uh, right. So because of that absurdity, I kind of couldn't take anything seriously that it was saying that that turns out to be. I mean, like I said, I didn't know if any of the birds that he's referencing, like the vampire finches, yep. which sounded fascinating. That's, that's a real, real thing. That's all real. Yeah. Oh my god. See, that's really cool, and yet I couldn't, you know, enjoy that cool factoid because I thought he was just making it up in, you know, his weird, absurdist way. And the other thing about the book that's difficult, and, you know, I I don't really believe in the whole show-don't-tell thing. I think that's the stupid dictum that they give freshman writing students to, to get them to write scenes. But, that being said, 
there's not a fucking scene in this book. No. And <laughs> I, you know, it's I just wanted to see people talking to each other and interacting. And it's just a constant stream of telling things. And yeah. I know that's part of the charm of Vonnegut's work is often these digressive long sections of, you know, of thought and all that. But in this story, it doesn't need it. it it's, it's about these people on this island and about this de-evolution of, of man and all this stuff. I, it was just an unceasing barrage of voice. And I just yeah. wanted to see a single scene. Yeah. Because you don't care about anybody. I, you don't exactly. care about anything. Yeah. I, don't, I, I really didn't, I didn't care. I didn't care about yeah. anybody. <laughs> Really painful. So I, I cared more about the girls in um, Sweet Valley High than I cared yes, about. Me too. <laughs> and me I was too. more worried about them because of all the date rape and all that. Yeah. that's going on. And well, the yeah, I think there was more character development there. Transitioning into a, a major weakness, uh, the uh, I think the biggest problem. Well, the biggest problem is the tense and the skimming, uh, as we're saying. But um, to move on to a new problem. Um, the Cocobono girls. The, yeah, uh, that's really offensive. There's... God, I hate the way he treats them. Yeah. The way he treats them in the book yeah. is to completely marginalize them. And it's like, it, it loses so much of the value of his criticism. Like when he's trying to call another character racist for the way he treats those women, but then the way he writes them dismisses them completely right. and marginalizes them. And it's like Kurt Vonnegut ends up being more racist than the character he's trying to criticize for being racist. It's so... I don't know. That's how I felt. I mean, somebody should, you know, 50 years in the future when we're a little further away from this original writing of the book, someone should rewrite this book from the point of view of one or two of those girls. Um, someone must would... already be doing that. Someone someone must be writing one of those companion books right yeah. now at this point. Yeah, probably, you're right. Because it's so interesting. They you, they don't even come in until, you know, a third of the way through the book. And then if they end up being these Eve figures. Right. But, um, yeah, that's a big problem. But I will... All right. So here's why I don't hate everything about it. I do think thematically there's a lot going on here. I mean, maybe too much. And that's why it's so chaotic. But um, one of the stronger things is the introduction of this basically computer, babblefish type thing. Right. Um, That was was our iPhones, it's called. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And when you, you know, know that this was written in the 80s, you know, it's it's really interesting. And what would it be like to be trapped on an island with basically one iPhone um, that's translating between But also, everything. being so 80s, I love that it's tied to this fear of Japanese technology. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, like, we've talked about this before, right. you know, when we talked about Michael Crichton's Rising Sun. Right. And, and they, like, that was the big part of the 80s, right? It was, like, yeah. this fear of Japanese genius and Japanese technology. And that's, and it's, again, it's, like, this really kind of racist worldview that Vonnegut is throwing out there. It's like those crazy Japanese and their weird technology that's going to ruin us all. And like that fear it was so 1986. It's, I couldn't believe that. Well, that was and it's also, and, you know, someone who had been through world war two and still viewed the Japanese as a clear and present danger, you know? Right. That's um, true. Yeah. But, th- but that, that part it felt alone, so dated, didn't it? Yeah, it, was like, it really did. <laughs> It was like, get off my lawn, you Japanese people with your technology, with your yep. Betamaxes and your VHSs. Yep. yep. <laughs> right. But, you, I mean, you do have, 
you do have to hand it to Vonnegut for thinking of this thing that, you know, is now part of our daily life. But then I was just, I just remembered, oh yeah, well, Douglas Adams had already invented that in the, with the Babblefish thing in, in Hitchhikers. There's no way he was not influenced by Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when he wrote this. Oh, no. I mean... No way. I'm sure. Well, but here's a question because I have been, like it. I said, I have only read Cat's Cradle and I, that was so many years ago. I mean, how much of this is typical Vonnegut tone, like voice? I mean, what, what is it? Is, is he a satirist of this type? Like yeah. where it's always this conversational, like sort yes. of whimsical yes. thing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Less so in Slaughterhouse-Five um, than, in, I mean, this is far more voicey and theme-driven than Slaughterhouse-Five or Cat's Cradle. Um, but, it, so, and Julia, you, you just said this, that, you know, there's all these themes. Here's the thing. Wh whoever walks into a bookstore and or gets on Amazon is like, you know what, I gotta find a book with a great theme to read. Yeah, Yo, you're right. I hope, this, I, hope, I hope this is filled with themes I like. Um, but, you know, it, yeah, he was a really deft satirist. And, and I think when he was on point, he was saying things that no one else was saying and and so so many people aped his style over the years it's it's not inconceivable that douglas adams aped his style to write the checkers guide to the galaxy um so i mean you know there there's a little bit of chicken and egg thing going on here also i suppose yeah um, and i think that you know from my memory of what i okay so i have to correct uh what you said todd because there is one scene in the book and it's he does it's like when he finally like calms down and it's you're like, oh, and then this is the Vonnegut that's in every other book. It's the last scene where it's just randomly Kilgore Trout right. crying about his dad. And that's a really wonderful scene. Yeah, that's it's, a moving scene. It's well written. It's beautiful. It has absolutely no relation to the rest of the book. <laughs> but, but to answer your question, Ryder that character and those emotions and like that's the vonnegut that's in a lot of other books you know like that's the through line so if you liked or were in any way intrigued by that little nugget um it's really that really struck me as the tone that i remember from some of his other works okay um, well so is vonnegut just one of these people who he wrote a lot of books right yeah. But really, are all of them pretty crappy except for Slaughterhouse Five and Cat's Cradle? Like, mm -hmm. is, is he one of those kinds of authors that was just constantly writing and he's really famous and popular because of two great works and then the rest are just crap? No. Like, no, no? I, I don't think that's Well, that's true. how I felt after reading this. I was like, oh, God. Like, what is the deal with Vonnegut, you know? Because <laughs> I think the deal What is, is the deal with Vonnegut? It's the worst <laughs> well, he's one of those authors. Here's the thing. Well, I think we've talked about this before. Vonnegut is one of those authors that everybody has. Like, you know, it's like the... the Breakfast the of Champions freshman. is genius. Um, the Sirens of Titan is pretty great. Um, okay. You know, Mother Night. So the... Okay, so uh, there are good... Yeah, I mean, he wrote like... Like forty books or something like no. that. Yeah, I, so Champions is an here's, amazing book. Yeah, I love right. that one too. That was the first one I read. So here's what I think: Vonnegut was, I mean, to translate it on Douglas Adams isn't quite right because Vonnegut was so angry. You know, all of his books mm -hmm. have a seething anger to them, 
And anger is such a temporary emotion. Like you can direct yeah, your, true. you can be so angry about one particular thing and then two weeks later be on to something else, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like he just wrote so much and created such a volume of stuff. It's not that certain that he only wrote one or two good books. I think he just wrote so emotionally. One of our most emotional pop culture writers that the things that he was angry about that are no longer relevant or he was a little bit off, they're just not holding water. Whereas Mm -hmm. being angry about war or advertising or something that, you know, really has this long tail into our current era, it doesn't feel so dated because Mm -hmm. like who doesn't want to read Slaughterhouse Five? I mean, and then Cat's Cradle is about nuclear war, which is dated in certain ways, but in other ways it's, you know, still very relevant. This idea yeah. of apocalyptic, you know, destruction. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like Galapagos went for the, you know, like we're too smart for our own good thing, but it just imploded on itself because he couldn't find a plot that matched his level of rage. You know? Wow. I, well, the, the last book of his I read before this was, so I had to go look this up to remember the title because I mentioned earlier, is a collection of his unpublished short stories called While Mortals Sleep, which um, Dave Eggers wrote the foreword to and has illustrations that Kurt Vonnegut did in it as well. Um, but these were all really old stories. Um, and some of them were good and some of them were not good, but you could see his genius in every single one of them. Here, like, it's clear that the guy is obviously, Kurt Vonnegut was obviously a genius. He was obviously one of those people who's, as he makes fun of in the book, whose brains were bigger than the rest of ours. But that doesn't mean that everything he did was infallible. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that, that we write, sometimes we write bad shit. That's just, that's just what happens. And I don't know, I, I, I'm just, as the Brits say, gobsmacked that this was the book though julia that you read like that all of skidmore read i can't i can't wrap my mind around that like of all the kurt vonnegut books they pick pick this but it's not picking kurt vonnegut it's picking a book that is gonna you know touch on you know 20 disciplines right so I, i will look up i will follow up on this and find out what some of the other books they picked for uh they change it every year um, but I, I do have this, like, simmering memory of <laughs> the professors being like, uh, uh. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, this would be a hard book to have to teach. Like, yeah. As, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I guess if you're a biology or an anthropology professor, maybe you could could just sort of not worry about it and be like, so let's talk about the finches and, you know, use that as a launching point, which I guess it wouldn't really matter that the book is such crap. But if you were trying to yeah. teach English literature or American literature, and then this was the book that you had to somehow connect to. But it yeah. does, it does make the arguments for all the things that, you know, at the time would have been important to teach 18 year olds, be ecologically sound. Yep. Don't trust the Japanese mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> computers will ruin your life. Celebrities will crush you. Artificial take... insemination works. Artificial insemination works. Read more so you don't have to depend on some computer to give you your information. Um, you know, all, all those sort of, you know, the things that uh, us ultra liberals get, get picked on for everything. It's all right there in 300 pages of 
finely wrought text of you know i mean it's like a uh i don't know i just didn't like it let let me just that this is my final analysis is i just deplored reading it and i feel bad about it but not too bad don't feel bad about it i i you know i'm just bummed that because i was sort of looking forward to reading a vonnegut book to kind of see how i felt about vonnegut and Clearly, this is the wrong one to, to do that. So I, I should just go read Slaughterhouse Five. Well, um, I'm sorry I went on vacation to the Galapagos. I should have gone back in time it. to the Vietnam War. And you know yeah. what? God damn it. <laughs> I went on vacation to Sedona, and I didn't make you guys all come back and read Native American literature about the Red Rocks. Okay, so, wait a minute. Julia, wait a minute. I would totally do that. Is there, is there good Native American literature about the Red Rocks? That sounds good. Yes, yeah, totally interesting that. Pueblo stuff, actually. All right. So, I mean... I guess just as a final broader thought, when you guys travel to locations, do you, I mean, I always do this. I always try to read at least three books related, whether it's fiction by someone from there or just something beyond the two pages in Lonely Planet that's like, oh, Galapagos is the seat of evolution, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I don't. I never have. I probably should, but... um... For some reason, yeah, it's never happened. I do a lot. Like, when we went to Savannah, I read uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, um, and I read some nonfiction about that. Or even if, um, like, I'm just going somewhere that I haven't been before, and I just want to get an idea of some cool stuff to see, I'll read a novel that takes place in there, you know, Hmm. the travel guide. Um, Or I have to go to Minnesota in April, so I'm just listening to a shitload of Prince. Um, yeah, I just find that, and I mean, it totally warps my experience with the book because I can just never have the experience again of reading this book like you guys or any normal American who hasn't been to the Galapagos. I mean, it will always be infused by my actual trip there. So it's it's really cool to have those experiences, and I always try to grab them where I can. Yeah, I agree. Smart. I agree. Yeah. But let's just pick better ones. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, um, you know, uh, okay. And everybody go read Breakfast of Champions because I remember loving this. And that'll be it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read the essay, My Dad, the Pornographer by Chris Offutt. Literary Disco is edited and produced and saved every week by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening.